Welcome to the Sun and Moon Sober Living Podcast. This is an inclusive space where we dive into many themes related to holistic sober living. My name is Mary Tilson, your host, and I'm so excited to introduce you to today's guest, Cheryl Brown Merriweather. Cheryl is the Vice President and Executive Director of the International Center for Addiction and Recovery Education. She is the President of the Greater Orlando Society for Human Resource Management and is an Associate Faculty Member at the University of Phoenix. Since the onset of COVID-19, Cheryl has often been featured as a subject matter expert, writer, and speaker on the workforce impact of the pandemic. As you will soon learn, Cheryl also has an incredible story of personal transformation as the adult child of an alcoholic and child to a parent with mental illness. She's very honest about her personal battle with codependency and has gone on to make an incredible impact in the recovery space. So without further ado, let's get into the conversation. Cheryl, welcome to the podcast. It's such a privilege to have you as our first guest. Well, thank you for inviting me. It's such a privilege to be here with you and to have the opportunity to talk about this very important subject. So thank you for inviting me. It is such an important one and you bring such a wealth of experience. So I was hoping that we could just start with you sharing a bit about your journey and what led you into working in the recovery space. Well, thank you for asking, and I'll try to be brief because we certainly don't want to cover a lifetime, but the interesting thing about it, Mary, is that it seems as if everything in my life has brought me to this time and this season and this place to be able to do this work, and it's very exciting. Part of it, of course, always goes back to the beginning, right? So my family of origin is where my story starts. I actually was adopted as a child into a family and I lived in that family as the only child. But as the only child, I struggled with parents who had problems. My father was alcoholic and my mother was struggled with mental health issues, mental illness. So I am an ACOA, you're familiar with that term, the adult child of an alcoholic parent as well as living in a household with a mother who struggled with mental health issues. So as I grew my whole life and everything that that happened as a result of that was framed by the family of origin issues, if you will. So it just goes to show how complex this disease is of substance use disorder or addiction because there are things, elements of it that are genetic and and biological, but a lot of what we experience as adults in that space are a result of, of environmental aspects as well. So that having begun that way, I developed patterns. And I think you may be familiar with patterns. I married a, a gentleman who had behavioral addiction problems. I later learned that I am myself a, a in recovery from codependency. If your readers or your listeners can relate to that, that is, is of course, one of the things that codependents do is try to fix everything and help everything. So I was determined to fix and help people in my environment one way or another. It motivated me to go to college and get, you know, advanced degrees 
and to use my training and education in human resources, which is, guess what, Mary, a helping profession. So <laughs> human resource practitioners can help and they can coach and they can sometimes fix things in the workplace that we're not able to fix in our, in our personal lives, in our families. And as I mentioned, I was adopted. You may be interested to hear this. I later found my biological family and guess what? I have a, addiction, alcohol abuse and addiction in my biological family and actually lost a half brother, biological half brother to alcoholism, substance use disorder. And my adopted father died from alcoholism. So my personal life has always involved being in a system where individuals struggled with either substance use disorder or mental health issues, which led me to get education and career experience trying to help individuals and as life would happen somewhere in that journey of trying to learn about these things so that I could get well if you will it led me to the opportunity to use my knowledge my experience my skills my education everything that I had picked up along the way along life's journey, I was able to bring it together when I came to work at iCare, the International Center for Addiction and Recovery Education. In the role that I have here now, I can use all of it, Mary. The family stuff, the personal stuff, the professional stuff, the education stuff. It's like, it's an amazing place to be. And people will ask sometimes, how did you get to be where you are and do what you do. And I just say it must have been destiny because everything in my life, when I was in the middle of it, sometimes didn't feel real well or real good, or real pleasant, but it has all come together for such a time as this to allow me to do an amazing uh, bit of work that crosses over into the education space, the addiction space, the human resources and business and management and corporate space. So nothing has been wasted. Everything that I have lived and you hear uh, uh, people in recovery talk about our lived experience. So every part of my lived experience has prepared me and equipped me and enables me to now give back to help others through the work that I do. So it's a, it's a wonderful place to be, but it surely did not come as a result of a plan. I didn't write it down and make a plan and say, mm -hmm. that's what I'm gonna do one day. It just, I had the opportunity to use everything as I learned and as I grew and as I sought to help and to receive the help from others it really just finally positioned me to be able to do some really cool things and work with some amazing people. So that's how I got here. Thank you for sharing that. Gosh, I got the goosebumps as you were speaking because the way you've transformed your experience into making such a powerful impact. I obviously get to see having trained in your programs the, the impact on a global level because you're training people to go out and affect other people's lives in the world. 
And before we get more into that, a question that just came up for me is, do you think that now being in this role of service is also contributing to your own well-being? Because that's such a, of course, that's such a, you know, in the 12 steps and a lot of recovery programs, you see service repeatedly showing up. Oh, yes. And I, I get in trouble sometimes for because I tend to tell the truth <laughs> and people in recovery become very transparent. And, you know, we, we do that, but it was not always this way. Mm-hmm. It was not always clear to me what to do and how to do it and how to go about it. And then when I found myself in positions of trying to talk about it, of course, you know, that I was terrified. There's so much stigma around addiction and substance use and mental health that we don't talk about those things. For So for years, I would not even talk about these things. And then with the help of others going through my own recovery work, doing the work, if you will, I would, in the safety of, of some of the groups and working with the counselors, you learn and you grow and you try new things. And as I saw myself change and grow in confidence and learn new things, which helped me grow in competence, right? So together they are an awesome combination. And that then emboldened me, if you will, or empowered me to begin to share selectively, of course, at first, but talk about and tell my story. And the amazing thing about that, Mary, is I learned that it's like breaking the ice when you or someone has the courage to crack open the door, break the ice and say, let me tell you a little bit about my story it just has such a powerful impact to help others be willing to share a little bit about their story. And granted, sometimes they'll come up one-on-one when no one else is looking, (laughs) but they'll share, begin to share a little bit about something they have in common with you. And it was through those little experiences that I had where I tried something, let me share a little bit and then seeing the response with others saying me too mm-hmm. that over time it became the the heart of service it's like oh let me tell my story and you, of course you learn and grow about what when and how and where <laughs> to do that from experience sometimes it's not always pleasant but it, it's a part of the growth process Mm -hmm. and and giving back has become my purpose and it's healthy not just that activity that an adult child of an alcoholic does just to please and just to stay busy it really helped others working with me over time helped to give me focus and direction and guidance and support which is exactly what the coaches do. So again, nothing gets wasted. It all works together to give us what we need to go out and help someone else. And that's really what it's all about. Absolutely. And I'm so glad that you can share that because particularly for the people who are listening, who might be struggling in that place of struggle right now, it's, Mm -hmm. it provides so much hope and optimism for what the future might hold. 
by taking baby steps. It, if you look at the analogy of a child and human development, there's a lot that happens before they take their first step. Mm. And so for people in recovery, a lot of the work has to be done internally in a safe environment before we get to a place where we can take some other steps. Absolutely. And I would love for you to explain for people. So within the the space of addiction and recovery, there's of course, traditional treatment. People might think of rehab facilities. There's 12 step meetings. You could potentially work with a sponsor. You could work with a licensed therapist. So where does the role of recovery coaches that you certify fit into that mix? It's an interesting question. That's a very good question. And I actually have seen a lot of evolution in terms of where the recovery coaches fit into the process. So initially, they focus on supporting individuals in recovery. But of course, using non-clinical skills to do that, we spend a lot of time helping people clarify the difference between clinical and non-clinical services. We make sure people are clear around terminology. You mentioned Mm -hmm. peer recovery support, recovery coaches, the clinical whole group of people that work in clinical services, counselors, therapists, coaches. So, you know, we, we spend some time initially making sure people are clear when we talk about recovery coaching, what we're talking about. But when we talk about recovery coaches, they are most often individuals who have gone through their own personal journey and found themselves into recovery and who now want to turn around and help someone else navigate that journey and provide support for those individuals. So the majority of the recovery coaches that we see, that we train, that we certify and work with, that is how they come to us. And that is their area of focus to learn the skills and the knowledge to be able to provide support to others. And by the way, we're talking professional recovery coaches get paid providing non-clinical services. But over time, oh my goodness, they do so much more. So if you can picture a, a, you know, like a, a, a diagram that has the clinical services at the bottom of the V, if you will, the bottom of the pyramid or the inverted pyramid, if you will, that's where the clinical folks work. And then on the right side of that, Mary, that's where recovery, you come into this thing, you go down, you need clinical services, you come back up the other side, and you try to sustain your recovery long term. So when we started, the recovery coaches did not work in the clinical, they worked in the recovery space to help individuals maintain long term sobriety, achieve and maintain long term sobriety. But now, so many things are happening to draw attention to the prevention space, right? Mm -hmm. What can we do through wellness, the provision of wellness services in partnership with wellness coaches, health coaches, some of mental health practitioners also, we cannot just 
address the needs of people in recovery, although that's important and that's our primary focus. But what if we could catch them before they need clinical services so that we can prevent people from needing those services. So in addition to supporting the, the achievement and maintenance of long-term recovery, the coaches are now very much involved in the prevention space. They provide education, training programs. They do, as we are doing today, they, they do podcasts. They are writing articles and publishing things. Some of them have written books, but they're attacking the problem with a variety of different types of solutions. So yes, they work with individuals to achieve and maintain and support their recovery, but they're also very involved now in other ways in the prevention space with a message of, that helps people become more knowledgeable and aware of these things. And perhaps, you know, if you're familiar with the stages of change, maybe they're not ready to take action, but our coaches are out there helping people think about maybe mm -hmm. they want to make a change in their behavior, you know, and, and so that they don't have, uh, get to the point where they need clinical services. So I, I hope that answered your question. They're, they're doing so much more. It has just been the most incredible joy of my life to see the diversity, the different types of coaches that have come to us and their areas of specialty and they're working with different types of, of clients. So you name it, they use their personal knowledge and skills and they add to that what they learn in going through some of our programs and in talking with other coaches and then they go out and change the world, literally, one person at a time. If you change one person, if you affect one person, you affect a family. If you affect a family, you can affect future generations, a workplace, a community, you name it. It's like the water, you drip a, a drop of water on a pond and the ripples go out these amazing individuals that have gone on their personal recovery journey have come to us, obtained the knowledge and skills and credentials to become a recovery coach. They go out and transform lives and everything that follows beyond that individual into the family, into the community, into the workplace. And it's, it's just been the most exciting thing to to observe because our coaches mary have come to us now from 38 nations so it's exciting to think wow we've touched lives in 38 nations around the world it's really cool i love that yeah and i i love how you speak with so much passion about your work too because i feel i definitely feel that from the community that you've built of coaches and i really was so excited to hear as somebody because i know one of the first questions that i had for you as someone who has studied yoga and mindfulness and meditation extensively is if if there is space to incorporate some of this and you know another thing which i love what you said is about kind of 
getting to people before they reach the point where they need clinical intervention. And I think that's something that's so important for us to talk about, because on the one hand, there's so much shame and stigma still that's preventing people from getting the support that they need. And so it's sort of rewriting the narrative around what it means to be an alcoholic and an addict, and also acknowledging that you don't actually need to get to a point where you hit a rock bottom or have a life altering moment. We can address these things before they become problematic, before they have real consequences. And so what would you say, because it's interesting that within the recovery space, we can address things like alcoholism or drug addiction or codependency or gambling addiction, there's eating disorders. And it's, there's seemingly, it's quite Mm -hmm. a variety of things. But Mm -hmm. once you start to understand the work, you realize that it's typically stemming from the same root cause. You bet. That's true. That's true. Yeah. And, and to your point, that is really what is now opening the doors for us because there is so much stigma around addiction. You know, there is a movement now to break the stigma by those who work in clinical treatment services. And of course, we're talking not just substance use disorder or the addiction sciences, but also the mental health. There are two sides of the coin Mm. because you rarely see one without the other. To your point, when you get to the root of the problem, you find that there's a great deal of, of overlap. And so the dual diagnosis, if you will, is, is really helped to raise the level of interest in these topics. And they fall typically under now the classification of behavioral health. And mm-hmm. once on the clinical side, once the mental health folks and these addiction or substance use disorder folks started to come together, under the behavioral health umbrella, it really turned the page for us. And we have seen it come to pass because we have been embraced by the wellness industry. It's like for years, we were trying to figure out how do we get into the corporate space? How do we begin to deal with some of the problems in the place where they're being, you know, becoming clearly evident, which is the workspace because of the pressure and the stress and workplace culture. So much of workplace culture contributes, right, to some of the problems that we see. So we tried going through the HR door. I'm an HR practitioner, tried knocking on the door, let us in, let us in. They really said, go talk to the EAP people. You know, we don't have time to talk to you about those things. But when the wellness industry began to really look at stress and the impact of stress, how that's manifested in the lives of individual people, we started to attract health and wellness coaches to our program. It's like the mental health folks on the clinical side, they specialize in mental health, 
but they don't know really this thing, addiction, substance mm -hmm. use disorder. It's a little different. So we need to talk to those addiction counselors and those recovery coaches and kind of kind of bring them into the fold, if you will, because they fill a niche, they fill a gap that we don't have. So let's collaborate and talk to them and work together with them. So we started to get counselors and therapists who wanted to add the coaching program to broaden their skills, if you will, to give them additional tools to use. And for some of them, it's like, well, let, what can I do when I retire, right? Looking at life after clinical, I'd like to have some fun and do some coaching. Yeah. So that same evolution has happened within the wellness community. If you look at traditional wellness programs, particularly those in the workplace, they look at smoking and weight management and sleep disorder and high blood pressure and, you know, exercise, but they don't talk about substance use disorder. They will talk about stress, but they don't talk yeah. about substance use disorder. I'll share a quick story with you. I, there's a, a large hospital system located here in my area. I'm in central Florida. And they are a hospital system that at the time had 22,000 employees, and they were of a faith philosophy background in terms of the, their mission. And so it took me two years to get in there to talk to their wellness director about how we could support the work that they were doing. And because they had an amazing, incredible wellness program. I mean, a catalog 70 pages thick, but there was nothing in there about substance use disorder, about addiction. Isn't it mind-blowing if you know the numbers, how many people are affected by this between those who are directly affected and family members and loved ones? Thank you. That was the case that I made to her. So as time, long story short, I don't want to, you know, just go on, but the wellness industry is now seeking us out and partnering with us and sending us their coaches to add our specialty to their credentials. And so, and some of our addiction recovery coaches are then going on to add wellness credentials to their uh, credentials as well. So it's a wonderful marriage for us to partner not only with clinical professionals, but also with the wellness industry. And both sides are now equally welcoming to us. And the power of the collaborations is really phenomenal. Yeah, I love that you bring that up because something that was amazing to me is that, you know, alongside the first time I went to outpatient treatment, I started pouring myself into yoga. I didn't really recognize that there was this potential for somatic healing and processing some of what I was going through. I was just going to the classes and feeling something shift within me and just knowing I need more of this. And so I went on to do my teacher training and it became very apparent to me that despite the fact that there is this incredible link between, you know, as I started diving into the philosophy of yoga, if you look back at these ancient philosophies, they are so deeply intertwined with the 12 steps. And funny enough, my first teacher training, I was still so private 
uh, with my own, even though I was willing to be vulnerable in every other way with my teacher training group, I was so private about my recovery journey. So I couldn't necessarily say, oh, this is just like the 12 steps. But I started doing my research online and started to find that there are people connecting these dots. But I thought, you know, this should be more than just people who have been on both paths connecting the dots because every yoga teacher should be equipped with this understanding because what is going to be driving people to seek healing in this way and what's going to start to come up for people. And I just, I find it so interesting that even for me, after being certified as a yoga teacher and starting to teach, I still felt the shame and the stigma within the wellness space. I thought it took me years, probably four years before, while I was teaching, after being sober, feeling comfortable saying, yes, I am a yoga teacher. I lead retreats and I've struggled with addiction and alcohol has been a problem. And I just... It made me think, wow, if I'm still even in this space that is so much about, you know, wellness and and looking after each other and being vulnerable that that that's still still present. So which leads me to ask you, you know, you've done incredible work with bringing recovery conversations into the workspaces. Now, it's one thing to bring it into your workspace if you're in a healing space, but how has that been received or have how much like where are you at in terms of at the office or corporate level? Because when I, I worked in corporate before doing my training and my biggest fear working at an agency in Chicago was when I'm sneaking off yeah. to meetings, if yeah. I get seen. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it is still a very mixed bag. I mean, it depends so much upon the situation, right? It depends on the individual. It depends on the workplace culture. It depends upon leadership. It is really an interesting time, but to your point, and by the way, congratulations on, on your journey and and finding out how to incorporate you know, the yoga, we see lots of yoga folks coming through. It does fit so well, doesn't it? It's the physical, it's the spiritual, it's the, you name it. And and part of the six dimensions of wellness all coming together. So I celebrate your journey and where you are. And the thing that we focus on with the workplace is to try to raise awareness. Going back to my previous conversation about prevention, the Centers for Disease Control and the other government agencies here in the US that that represent this issue in the public space, they talk about the role of awareness as an element of prevention. And of course they encourage education and training as a way to break the silence and Mm -hmm. raise awareness But at the root of that is something called psychological safety. And there was an interesting study that was done by Google a number of years ago called Project Aristotle. And they were looking for like, what is the magic that makes a high performing team really awesome? What are the elements that that come together to make it work. And based upon this study, the number one thing that came to the surface around what it takes to make the workplace work is psychological safety. People have Mm. to feel safe 
to be transparent. If someone makes a mistake, you should be able to talk about it without judgment, without fear, without you know insecurity, but you should feel support and you should feel that it's gonna be received as a learning experience and everybody's gonna to come together and you know work. So, but that the root of that is called psychological safety. So when our coaches came to us and said, please help us go back where we came from, the coaches, many of them that have come through our programs come from corporate backgrounds. I've got airline pilots. I've got nurses. I've got HR people. I've got government bureaucrats. Mm -hmm. I've got, you name it, accountants, attorneys. There are certain occupations that are more predisposed to use, misuse substances and struggle with addiction than others. But many of them have come through our training, our, our coaches, and asked us to provide them with the tools needed to go back into the workplace and, you know, make a difference through education, raise awareness, help to create the psychological safety and tear down the stigma, break mm -hmm. the silence. So that's the experience or the experiment almost that we have been on for the last two or three years, creating the programs, doing the presentations, to kind of in real time, get a sense of what works and what doesn't work and how do we do this thing? And it has just been fascinating. Mm. And the, but then again, as things come together, we were doing that, Mary, and then COVID hit, right? Mm. And when COVID hit and everyone was then removed from their physical space in the workplace to a remote work from home location. And the mental health went into just serious dis distress. And mm -hmm. the, you know, some companies were sending people cases of wine to help them cope with being, you know, in distress at home. It just, you started to see articles about substance use disorder and the impact that COVID was having on the essential workers and the remote workers and the, the you know, working from home with the kids at home. I mean, it just started to appear everywhere. And yeah. all of a sudden, it was not something that could not be talked about. Mm -hmm. It was something that people desire to talk about. Mm -hmm. How can we talk about this? We've got to talk about this. Where can we go to get help? Because the clinical services were overwhelmed. There, there are not enough clinical services. There's not enough mental health practitioners. It takes too long to get them through the programs and licensed and certified. The, how, the boat is, you know, there's a hole in the boat and we're drowning. You know, we're sinking. The, there's fire everywhere. How do we put out the fire? And we then received with open arms people seeking us out to help them find um, the best way to approach these subjects in the workplace for the benefit of their workforce through education. And Zoom has mm. been a wonderful tool to help us do, guess what? Lunch and learn programs, yeah. which people can do from the privacy and safety of their homes. You know, So that is one thing that we've done, but it has opened the door for other opportunities. And since we're primarily speaking of recovery and recovery coaches, 
they're already asking us how quickly we can make available to them certified professional recovery coaches and facilitators to do training and education programs for the benefit of those in the workforce who are desperately seeking help. And you mentioned it earlier, if not only for themselves, but for their partner, for their spouse, for their child, for their parent, for their neighbor. <laughs> you know, yeah. if I don't personally need help, I know someone else who does. So by, by going in and being willing to share a little bit about my story, it creates that psychological safety where someone else may be willing to share a little bit about theirs or ask a question. And then through our partnership and collaboration with health and wellness practitioners or mental health practitioners and now HR professionals who realize the importance of creating education and conversations around these things, we're really starting to see it take on some traction and some momentum and we're having some real success in getting doors open for us to address some of these things in the workplace. Oh, that's so incredible. Yeah, I love how you touch on the importance of psychological safety in work. And, you know, one of the things that really, the, my first thought as somebody who has a recovery background with all these lockdowns and isolation and started to think about what about the meetings, you know, and this is, you know, now almost two years ago, but this has obviously been going on for a long time and what impact is this going to have? And then, you know, to take that a step further, once I saw, I started getting targeted for delivery alcohol and people were almost exploiting the mental yep. health crisis we were in. Yep sell alcohol. And as someone with this background, I just thought this is probably one of the saddest things. I mean, it was just devastating. And I think the fact that even if somebody who's not suffering Mm -hmm. could see that and think that that is okay to say, oh, wow, people are under a lot of stress, a lot of pressure, their mental health is tanking. They would be so willing to buy booze right now. And the fact that that is okay, that we accept that and we're not outraged shows me that we have a lot of work to do in this space and these conversations really need to be had. So that's amazing. I mean, it it makes me so happy to see also on the flip side, there are so much of these conversations, you know, even right now we're in dry January and people are taking on the dry January challenge. And, you know, you touched on also people who have maybe a loved one, a spouse, a partner, someone they work with. That's Mm -hmm. something that people reach out to me about, you know, sometimes on social media, when I'm sharing some of the things that I share and ask, you know, how can I support a loved one? And that's such a challenging question. And you obviously have the experience both professionally and personally. So I would love to hear your perspective. And if somebody's tuning in and they're listening and they're wondering what they can do to help a loved one. It it is really tough. It is really tough. We talked about those stages of change, right? Mm -hmm. So it, if a person is not ready to have the conversation or to open up or they're blind to the consequences of their own behavior and choices and actions, it's really hard 
to make a difference unless something critical happens and there's an incident and then you call 911, right? But other than that, it's, it's very, very challenging. So what we encourage that individual to do is to begin by themselves learning about this disease of addiction, right? That is one of the best things you can do is to become informed and become knowledgeable. My personal background includes a lot of work in a, a faith community. And one of the things that is always fascinating to me is people of faith will sometimes believe, well, they ought to just be able to quit. You ought to just say a prayer and it should just be mm -hmm. like a done deal. You should just change instantly and go off about your business and never do that thing anymore. But they don't understand this disease and, and how it is a brain disorder. They don't understand that, you know, neurotransmitters and chemical things happen inside the body to cause cravings. And, and to your point, you mentioned it earlier, the root of addiction is the same, regardless of your drug of choice. So I may not consume alcohol, but food, I may have a food addiction or pornography addiction. So it could be substances, it could be behaviors, it could be a combination. You know, there's so much more to the disease of addiction that people don't understand. So if you care enough to offer to support someone you love, then part of that should motivate you to want to learn about what is going on with that person for them to be in that situation. And through that process, you will learn yourself things that you may do be able to do differently to provide support. It's almost like sowing a seed or to what extent are we enabling someone? Are we as, am I codependent? Am I helping to make things worse? You know, yeah. you learn about family systems and, and how, and the roles that we play in the family. So that is for me, the best and first step. And then speaking of the workplace, we are one of the strategies I'll, I'll share this with your listeners. One of the strategies that we're trying to do to raise awareness and a higher level of um, just welcoming for these things is to go in through something that they are familiar with in the workplace. And that is now the diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives, which are everywhere, right? Everyone's talking DEI, it's being taught and focused on strategically inside of companies. Those things, uh, Mary, have traditionally focused on race, you know, gender, uh, yes, some national origin things, but they've always in the last 20 or 30 years been something around diversity. And in recent years, we understand this inclusion thing. And so what we're trying to do, and there are, there is a, there are different organizations out there, but one that I like to lift up is a company called Salesforce. If you're familiar with Salesforce, yeah. they're a big CRM company, you mm -hmm. know, they have the, the technology, but they, there were four guys or gals, four folks inside of Salesforce in recovery. Mm. And they said, let's find some other people that work for Salesforce in recovery and see if we can oh, pull cool. them together. 
And they created something called Sober Force. Sober Force has grown to now having about 1,000 employees inside of Salesforce that are part wow. of Sober Force. And they had, have now received company designation as a, if some people call them business resource groups, employee resource groups, affinity groups, equity groups, but they're primarily employee led groups inside the company, you know, groups of employees who have common or shared interest. Some of them represent these different groups based on race, religion, national origin, color, sex, gender, disability status, those types of things, or just shared interests. We're gonna go build a house or walk for breast cancer or something. But we, because of the example that Salesforce has set and other companies, I'm out there now saying, open up your diversity, equity, and inclusion program to include mm -hmm. people in your workplace that are in recovery, that have been hiding because they didn't feel safe. Give them a voice at the same level with which you give voice to these other employee represented groups groups and give them company status and let them lead the dry January efforts or, you know, Ruby Warrington's book, Sober Curious. There's a big Sober Curious movement mm -hmm. that's moving on the move. So maybe your recovery friendly workplace would open up doors for sober curious folks to talk to folks in recovery and bring about initiatives and activities and programs to educate and provide resources. So that's a door that we're going in through that fits very nicely under the workforce umbrella because it fits with human resources and the DEI movements. It fits with the employee benefits. It just fits. And the folks in the workplace already speak this language. Mm -hmm. So it's just like, you're familiar with this. Let's just open it up and make room for this other group of amazing individuals. Here in the United States, Mary, there's like 24 million people in recovery. Right. And, and there's and research says it's 70 percent of the people in recovery are employed full or part time in the workplace. So I'm like, they're there. You just mm -hmm. haven't found them. And if you create some safety, they will rise to the occasion and they will help you change your culture in the workplace. But it just takes a few willing people and the support from leadership to take the first steps to do little things to bring about big change that is sustainable. The key word there is we want to, whatever we do, we don't want it to be the program of the month that goes away next month. Right. We want to create something that's sustainable. And the way to do that is to bring in the people who care the most about it. And when you do that, they'll start popping up out of the woodworks, even at senior yeah. level yeah. leadership. It's like, I'm in recovery or I have a child in that's, you know, struggling with substance use disorder or, but it, it's amazing when you get, take those first few steps, what can come from that. I love that so much. Gosh, shout out to Salesforce. I'm going to be looking up Soberforce right after that. 
There are blog <laughs> podcasts out there with senior levels of managers where they say alcohol is a drug, you know, and we want support alcohol at our company functions. That's what their CEO has said. So yeah, leadership and, plays a key role too. Yeah, it's so great because like you said, once that psychological safety is there and people are safe, because, you know, for me, I know I wasn't, my safe space started very much in outpatient treatment with my group in group therapy, AA meetings and expanded to my yoga community and eventually to the place where I'm very comfortable talking to, you know, people, anyone really. But now that I'm able to have that feeling of psychological safety and have conversations, it's so beneficial for those people who will never have direct experience with addiction, but will definitely have a loved one or a coworker, and they want to be able to support, but they just don't have the understanding. Like one of my friends said to me, like, you know, it really made me think what you said, because I had said something along the lines of, you know, why is it that alcohol is the only drug that we need to make an excuse not to use? You know, where why are we trying to justify why we're not using it? And she said, wow, that really clicked something for me. And, you know, it's just these little things that will yep. really shift the way people think and the ripple effect. I love that yes. analogy that you gave about the pond is so beautiful because the ripple effect. Yep. Um, and would you be able to, just for our listeners who might not be aware of some of the terminology that you used about codependency and to be an enabler and where, cause there's a, there's a distinction there, which you made about educating yourself and going in with an awareness and then approaching it from a place of codependency or enabling. So how is that difference and how did you navigate that, you know, yourself? I'm sure there was some tough learnings there. You bet. And I, I mean, for years, I went to group therapy with groups of people who were in recovery or trying to get and sustain, maintain their personal recovery. And I had a one person hand me a book about codependency. And until then, I did not really know what codependency was. I'd heard the term, Mm -hmm. but I didn't really understand what it was. Why, why would I pay any attention to that? I didn't need that. And then the mm-hmm. funniest thing, I was in actually in a conversation with a person talking about my spouse who had the behavioral addiction at the time. It's like, he this, he this, he that. And they were like, stop. I don't want to hear another word about him. Let's talk about you. And I'm like, I'm fine. What are you talking about? I don't have a problem. He's the problem. So they gave me a book about codependency. And as I read it, I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm the poster child. That's me, (laughs) you know, but in learning about that, it it took me back to my family of origin and my family of origin as a child with alcoholic and mentally ill parents, you learn these roles. You don't even realize it, but you learn certain survival skills, if you will, patterns of behavior to survive in what is literally chaos. (laughs) You you know, that's just what we know, but in hindsight, it was like really not good. It's traumatic, it's unhealthy, it's chaotic, it's an addictive, abusive, hostile family environment of origin. So as a child, you learn to please people, you learn to be very helpful, you learn to be the best. You don't want to you walk on eggshells. You don't want to do anything to disturb the peace, you know, and at all costs, we got to make it look good. 
because in that family system, we keep secrets. And, you know, so there's all these rules that we learn that we don't even realize we just are in a survival mode. And, but as you learn about these things, Mary, you're like, there's some, they call that something. There's a name mm. for that. <laughs> Enabling is helping a person who is in active addiction, maintain their active addiction, right? It's like, they need a fix. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, I know the fix is not good for them, but they're suffering. So right now I'm going to just give them some money so that they can get whatever they need so that they don't suffer. That's enabling. I help them maintain their addiction, <laughs> trying to be helpful, but I'm enabling that to continue it, because it's very difficult to draw a line in the sand and stick to it and say, no, I'm not going to let you do whatever. That's, you know, very hard to learn to make that boundary, set that boundary and maintain those boundaries. Part of my group work helped me learn about those things and learn to do those things with the support of others who like people in recovery we need to hold us accountable to do yeah. certain things as it relates to our own behavior but it was really through that process of learning which is why i as an educator just say learn read study get in a group talk to people that's why that safety is so important that people can say, where can I go to find out? Here's a book. Let me give you a book, article, website, podcast, whatever. People need that to learn. And then they understand this terminology because it is there is a language around addiction. There's a language to describe roles in the family system. There's but there's ACOA, adult child of an alcoholic. It's a real thing. (laughs) There are characteristics that people have who grow up as children in households, families of origin where there are alcoholic or other addiction dependent individuals. We learn survival skills, which cause us to act in certain ways, which when you look at those, they fit the definition of codependency we, you know, are going to help make it right, even if it kills us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and sometimes it almost does. But that's a little bit of a distinction. But it, the, both of those, there's a wealth of other sources of information that people can explore to learn more about them. But that's how I came to the knowledge of and realized, oh, my gosh. So then I was able to begin and continue my recovery journey and in the safety of a group and working one-on-one with a coach and personally I'm in a just a different space now but it it takes time just like addiction is progressive chronic and and can evolve and over decades in a person's life so does sometimes the process of recovery Mm. take a, a long time to to get to and to maintain but it's so we're never not learning and growing and you know just continuing to do and where we started Mary the more we serve the more we help others and I've had people come into our programs and say by going through the program of learning how to help someone else with true knowledge and true skills it helps them maintain their sobriety and their long-term recovery 
because as you learn and grow and help, you continue to learn and grow and help, which continues, mm. helps you to continue to learn and grow to, and help. So that becomes the pattern of our lives, not the addictive pattern. We break the addictive pattern and replace it with a recovery lifestyle. Mm-hmm. And it just is the, it's, and people, it's the most beautiful thing to behold when people are, as you know, in recovery. And it's just, so that's what it's all about. Oh, thank you. Gosh, I couldn't agree more. And I love what you say about, you know, the importance of that ongoing education and having a language around things and a support group. Because I think especially when it comes to things like codependency and enabling, until we've had direct experience, everybody's going to think, oh, I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't be giving money or supporting or watching a loved one. But you really, these are the things. And, you know, same with, as you said earlier, like when it comes to addiction and people, you know, in faith circles saying, well, why don't they just, you know, get on with this stuff? It's like, I prayed well, for them. Why can't they just go stop doing that stuff? I prayed for them. And it takes prayer. I believe in prayer. I'm an ad, I, I right. believe that whatever it takes. And I'll say this along that line. There are so many paths to recovery, Mary. Right. There's so many paths to recovery. And that is one of the things that I've seen evolve over time that is so absolutely rewarding. You know, the history, and I speak from a U.S. perspective, but the 12 steps, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous, that has evolved to every other kind of anonymous you can imagine. God bless mm-hmm. them all. We need them all. But there are so many different paths to recovery now. Mm. And that's one of the things that's really amazing and beautiful. It's like, find what works for you, stick with it and do it and get free. Because it's not all one or the other. There are many paths to recovery. And people used to say, you have to hit rock bottom before you can know you don't have to, you know, so if we can open up the umbrella, the big tent, and that's why I like the inclusion focus. Mm. You know, we talk about inclusion as everybody is, has a voice. Everybody Mm. has value. Everybody's lived experience is worthy to be recognized and validated and affirmed and, you know, communicated, shared. So if we can get to that place and recognize, I've got people who do it the yoga way. I've got people who work with horses. I work people Mm. who live born and bred, bled and died 12 steps. I've got people (laughs) that don't want to go anywhere near that 12 step. They had a bad experience with it. So, but it's, and there's the technology now is so is created so many there are apps there are you know you can connect with people through chat rooms or groups online or podcasts or you know there's just it's just a wonderful time to be seeking recovery and groups to connect with and there's something for everybody out there. Literally, if you're looking around, there's groups for old people, young people, kids, this drug, that drug, this behavior, that behavior. There's something for everybody. And we advocate and support and encourage all of it. And for folks that come through our program, just not to really promote it, but to say, and you mentioned it, the root of this stuff applies across the spectrum. So mm-hmm. if you understand the disease, the causes, the, the, and the process of how to interrupt 
the negative patterns and replace them with wholesome, healthy wellness substitutes, which transform an individual's life in all areas. If you learn those fundamentals, then you can go out and help people that fit you, right? I can find my people, my people, and I can support Mm. my people. And we have people that do music, country music. I've got people that work, like I said, the equine lady, people that do work with the horses is just fascinating to me. I'd love to hear (laughs) therapy. Yeah. So, you know, there's something for everybody. Big tent. Yeah. Recovery land. (laughs) I love that. And just to, I feel like that kind of leads into the, I feel like I could First of all, talk to you forever about this, but just to be mindful of your time, that leads so beautifully into the last question that I had for you, because, you know, there's so many approaches to um, recovery. There's so many ways to get sober, to heal from addiction. What would you say are your top three or like biggest tips for people, Mm -hmm. no matter what path you choose, that are kind of the core to maintaining sobriety for the long term and and that freedom? Yeah. And thank you for that. That's a great question. And I think we've touched on the top three for me. So I'll just kind of repeat them to put a bow on it, if you will. Yeah. But it's number one is the support system. People don't recover alone you know you have to be part of a community and have a support system whatever that looks like which means you need to be able to let people know where you are with that thing right and say I need help I'm looking for help I'm asking for help very few people turn down a request for help I mean if you kind of say hey this is where I am this is what I'm trying to do I need help the help will come to you. So build a support system wherever you can find it. And for some people, that means you have to let go of one group and go replace that with another group of people, but go where you can find support and help in a community. Doesn't have to be a big community. That's why the the peer movement is so powerful. It's one person with lived experience who can talk to you to help you navigate that. Let me tell you what worked for me. Let me tell you who you can call. Let me tell you where you can get support and resources. So that's the the support system can start with one, can grow to become a group, can become an online community, but you just need to find the safe space where you can get the support that you need. That's number one. Number two, just keep learning. Just keep learning and growing. And I use the human baby uh, growing into a teenager, into an adult analogy. We don't get there overnight. It's a process. Just like most addiction doesn't occur instantly. It's a process to get into addiction. It's a process to get out. And the key thing for me to help get out of it is to be open to learn new things about this thing. So by learning, you grow. Knowledge is power. So that's number two. And it gives you, I'll say this about it, it gives you confidence and competence. You learn the language, 
You learn when other people speak about things, you can understand them because you understand the language. You ask the question about codependency versus enabling. I mentioned boundaries. You know, people talk about triggers. So the more you learn, the more you understand, the more competent you become. And then the more confident you are to either share information or ask the right questions to get the right answers. So, but that is tip number two, learn and grow. And then tip number three, just be willing to take the risk and share little pieces of your story <laughs> at first, where you have a safe person in which you can confide, who will not judge you, who will not, you know, go crazy and snap because of the stigma and say crazy stuff, but be a little bit brave, <laughs> be willing to be a little bit transparent, be willing to share a little bit of your story. And when you do that, it, it, it first of all affirms that you are a person who has strengths. You are a person that is resilient. You are a person that has endured. You are a person that has overcome. You are a person that has value and meaning and purpose. And you are a person that has hopes and dreams and desires. And you're a person that has fears. And you, whatever you are is so complex. But guess what? We all are human. So we all at some point in our lives experience those same feelings, those same emotions. And so by learning how to take the first steps and open up just a little bit and share just a little bit, you will find that it will encourage you it will continue to build your personal strengths, your personal resiliency, and it will open up the door for others to come to you, to support you, to help you, and to, you know, just in, continue to encourage you to navigate your journey and to, and to hold some recovery. So those are my three that come to my mind right off the top of my head. I love that so much. Thank you so much for everything you've shared. This has been such a valuable hour of your time and I really appreciate it. And I know our listeners will too. Well, it was fun for me and you have my contact information. Feel free to send folks my way. If they want to reach out, they can find me on LinkedIn. That's a good place to find me. Cheryl Brown Merriweather on LinkedIn or through our institute's website, icare-aware.org. But, you know, I just want to thank you, Mary, for the work that you're doing. I want to, first of all, compliment you and congratulate you on your own personal recovery. I celebrate that with you. And I just look forward to seeing all the amazing things that you are going to do in the earth because you are making a difference. And I'll close with this. Have you heard the starfish story? Have you heard the starfish story? I don't think so. There, years ago, there's a book out, Chicken Soup for the Soul kind of thing. I don't know the origin of the story, but I'll say it and then I'll be, we can depart. But there's a story, it goes something like this. So picture a beach, if you will. And it's an early morning on the beach. 
and there are scar starfish scattered all over the beach. They came in with the tide, you know, and now the tide's gone out and you have all these starfish on the beach. So there's this old wise sage walking down the beach in one direction and he looks off into the distance and he sees a young person coming toward him from the opposite direction. And the young person is bending down and lifting up, almost like a ballet dancer, bending down and lifting up. And he's like, what in the world is going on? And as he gets closer, he sees this young person is bending down, picking up starfish and throwing them out into the ocean. And as he gets close to him, he says, what in the world are you doing? He's like, well, I'm throwing the starfish back into the ocean. And he says, that is the silliest thing, the craziest thing I've ever heard of. Look around this beach. Do you see there must be thousands of starfish on this beach? What in the world difference do you think you could possibly be making? And the young guy reached down, picked up a starfish, threw it over into the waves and said, well, it made a difference for that one. Oh, and that's the way I've tried to live my life. And you can Google the starfish story and you can print it. It's very famous. But I have lived my life trying to make a difference one person at a time. And that's what you're doing. I'm your first person that you're talking to in your podcast. So you've made a difference for me. And through me, we are making a difference, those ripples on the pond for many others, and you're just getting started. So please keep in touch with me and let me know of your continued success. And if there are other ways that I can support you, you can count on me to be here for you. I'm your cheerleader, I'm your advocate, and I will do whatever I can to support you and your listeners. And I wish you continued success in your personal recovery journey and in the work that you're doing to make a difference in the lives of your listeners. Oh, I feel that deeply. Thank you so much, Cheryl. It's been such, such a pleasure talking to you. Well, it's been my pleasure. Keep in touch with me. Let's hear from you.